Welcome to our podcast, Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today we're breaking down People of Earth, episode three of season three of Star Trek Discovery. We will summarize the plot and then discuss our impressions of the show. We'll end the podcast with recent Star Trek news. But before we begin, please remember our analysis will contain spoilers. So if you haven't watched the episode yet, you may want to do so before listening to our comments. Now, Gary, let's start off with the synopsis. Okay. So Michael Burnham chronicles the events of the past year where she reveals that the lithium reserves dried up about 700 years after Discovery's departure. And no one was able to develop an alternative warp-capable propulsion system. Subsequently, the burn brought the Federation to its knees when it caused all ships with active warp cores to detonate. Working as a courier while attempting to investigate the burn's cause, Burnham indicates she has experienced a great deal of personal growth in the time leading up to Discovery's arrival in the future. After a joyously tearful reunion between Burnham and her crew-turned-family, she briefs everyone on the burn and the millions who died, divulging that she located a transmission sent by an admiral, Sanatal, which invites those who still believe in the Federation to come to Earth. Burnham selfishly expresses her support for Saru to officially take over as Discovery's new captain. Saru takes the center seat with grace and authority. In a private moment with Burnham, Tilly mourns the personnel that Discovery lost and ponders the lives her family pursued once she was gone. The best friends manage to establish a new universal constant. Cake is eternal. (laughs) As they reconnect and reminisce. Elsewhere, Giorgio has brazenly outfitted herself in an admiral's uniform. Go, girl. (laughs) She welcomes Booker aboard with the demeanor of a parent scrutinizing their child's new partner. Burnham convinces the courier to join Discovery on its sport jump to Earth. Saru voices doubts about trusting Book, yet he shows faith in Burnham by agreeing to let Book's ship, the Nautilus, dock in Discovery's main hangar so that it can cloak the Starfleet vessel's valuable dilithium supply. The move pays off as Captain Ndoye of United Earth Defense Force blocks their access to the planet, boards the Discovery with armed troops, and greets the crew with great suspicion regarding their motives. An inspection team is among those who beamed aboard the ship to ensure Discovery is not a threat. Among the inspectors is Adira, a brilliant 16-year-old with a highly inquisitive mind. When in engineering, Tilly and Stamets take note of her gifts, and the usually reticent scientist seems to take an interest in fostering her talents. Michael works to disguise Book as a Starfleet lieutenant while she reflects on her past adventures with Book and Grudge, the cat. 
Always the astute observer, Giorgio recognizes that Michael's time in the 32nd century has changed the science officer more than her colleagues realize. And Doye informs Saru that the lithium raiders plague local space before disclosing a painful truth. And that is, Earth is no longer a part of the Federation. This news is particularly staggering since United Earth was one of the organization's founding members as well as Starfleet's longtime headquarters. A raider named Wynn, whose appearance resembles a mechanical insect, demands that Discovery hand over its dilithium. Ndoye readies for combat, but Saru stresses diplomacy. Michael recruits Book for an unauthorized mission that reminds them of a previous escape on Donato 7. The pair meet up with Grudge and depart in Book's ship to offer Wynn their dilithium. Discovery intercepts the tor torpedoes that the United Earth Defense Force fires at Burnham, who ends up defusing the situation by capturing Wynn. Saru and Burnham bring Ndoye and Wynn together, where we learn that the helmeted raider is actually a human from a research colony on Titan that split from Earth a hundred years before. After Wynn explains the truth behind his raids, Saru brokers a truce between the two parties, heralding a new period of peace. In engineering, Stamet learns that Adira hopes to join Discovery. The astromycologist gains the inspector's trust by telling the teenager all about the spore drive and the ship's expedition through time. Despite being human, Adira is Sinal Tal, having been joined with the Admiral's Trill symbiont. Saru decks out his ready room with Captain Giorgio's telescope and Michael formally accepts the Kelpian's offer for her to be his number one. Tilly and the bridge crew pay a heartfelt visit to a tree on the former grounds of Starfleet Academy in San Francisco, while the Discovery readies for its search for the new location of the Federation. Wow, so I really enjoyed that episode. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. So let's move on to the general analysis. Our third episode of the season was directed by Jonathan Frakes and written by executive producers Boyan Kim and Erica Lipolt. Delivered, and they delivered in a huge way. With that said, let's dive into the analysis. Okay. People of Earth picks up where we left off last week, but also it fills in a few bits of much needed information about Michael's year giving us a glimpse into how much she has adapted to this, these new surroundings. In a narrated montage, we're introduced to a Michael who has slowly adjusted to the realities of the 32nd century. Our trip to Earth proves that Michael isn't the only thing that is not how we remember it. When they get to Earth, they are greeted by a defense barrier thrown up around the planet, orbital platforms aiming weapons on the ship and being questioned by a representative of the United Earth Defense, informing them that they are not welcomed. This is prior to finding out what Discovery wants in the first place. So in part, people of Earth 
plays like a science fiction movie from the 1950s, with the discovery treated as if it is the invading alien. The isolationism and paranoia we see from the United Earth Defense Force is very similar to the type you would find in such movies as The Day the Earth Stood Still. Just as in that film, Captain Endoye of United Earth is, is immediately suspicious and wants nothing to do with Discovery. They put their Tholian web-like defense shield up and roll up the welcome mat. This is an Earth where Starfleet and the United Federation of Planets have been encouraged to leave soon after the burn because people feared their presence painted a target on the planet. Humanity is no longer fearless and welcoming of other species. It's a planet of people who feel every non-human entanglement poses a threat to its own security. Humanity believes that it must close rank and protect all that it has from any potential attacker. Paranoia is the law. The irony is that Discovery is a 930-year-old science vessel. The weapons, shields, and most of the rest of its technology is horribly out of date. The United Earth's Defense Forces board and inspect the ship without permission or opposition. They don't really know much about the state of the galaxy, and they don't have any friends. This is a very hostile environment for a group of people who have a worldview built on cooperation and collaboration. Their advantages are the sport drive, the enviable large dilithium cache, and their principles. That's cold comfort to a group of time travelers seeking some normalcy. But right on schedule, we get a squadron of dilithium raiders entering Earth space, hungry for some dilithium. Their leader, Wen, comes in looking like a breen or some other stock alien species out of those 1950 movies. So it stands to reason that just like Michael Rennie in Day the Earth Stood Still, when his ominous helmet is removed, mm -hmm. you see it's just a man underneath. That's right. Earth must acknowledge that the enemy they've envisioned is actually themselves, created by their own isolationism. Again, this story makes more parallels to our current world. That's really true. So, but let's move on to another subject, Gary, and that is of Michael. Yes. You know, she is quite different than the one we saw uh, last in The Hope Is You, Part 1. Michael's year in the future has fundamentally altered her concept of herself, and it really does show beyond the hairdo. I think this is a critical point. Michael has spent... 12 months having to adjust to this new world where as Tilly and the others have been here for only a few days at best. Um, they last saw Michael in the red angel suit leading the way into the future. For Michael, they are a memory of a former life. She has become accustomed to not always explaining herself or seeking permission for her actions. Uh, she will need time for Discovery to feel like home again. Now, Michael has three key exchanges that gives us insight to how much she has changed. Each person has a different take on what they observe in her. For Tilly, 
as she tells Michael how she herself is grieving for the passing of family and friends she left 930 years in the past, Tilly senses her close confidant allowed herself to let go of the, of the crew during that year without them. This would have been a necessary coping mechanism. But still, Tilly's senses it put her relationship back a few steps from where she remembers it being when they last saw each other. Likewise, Drogeau can see how Michael has changed as well. She perceives that this Michael is familiar to the one she knew in the mirror universe. This present Michael has stopped being limited by obligations or explanations. Instead, she has embraced the freedom of living without expectations of others constraining her. Others can see how this newfound freedom has impacted what she seeks for herself, especially Saru, who is shocked by Michael conceding the captain's chair to him without so much as a conversation. This is no longer the ambitious adopted daughter of Sarek. He understood what motivated her before, but this Michael is someone he may not know as well as he once did. Going forward, he might be introduced to a new side of Burnham, even as he holds suspicions about her new friend, Cleveland Book, Booker. Now, the chemistry between Michael and Book is great. Um, you believe that they have spent a year together getting in and out of tough spots. It's evident to almost everyone that Michael's relationship with Book has blossomed into a truly deep and abiding friendship. The shared experiences that they have cultivated over the last year are used as a private shorthand throughout the entire episode. It gives us the impression they have learned to rely on one another, that that has bred a loyalty that we clearly see on screen. The question is, for us, is that loyalty something that will be tested in the future? Yeah. And I think that's going to be the one of the interesting um, questions that's going to be explored. Oh, I agree. We did find Book's introduction to Discovery enjoyable. When he beams over to the Discovery, Giorgio immediately begins to interrogate him as to the nature of his relationship with Michael. Before he gives away anything, he catches himself. Still, he gives her enough to make some perfectly good assumptions. <laughs> Likewise, after the incident is over and Michael is offering Book the opportunity to stay with the Discovery, he turns the table on her, wondering openly if she wants to continue their partnership. She declines, and he declines her. All I know is that Book isn't gone for long. Oh, no. He will be back soon. I can anticipate that. I, I believe that. Right. Yeah, that's going to be. So now let's move on to another one of the things that we've um, liked about this episode. And that's actually the writers. People of Earth, which I love that title. It's almost as if it's taking a line from one of those 1950 science fiction movies. Mm -hmm. um, but People of Earth has proven one thing very clearly to me. And that is that Bo Young Kim and Erica Lippold are the best writers on this series. Mm -hmm. I have loved every episode they've written, particularly because of they have this keen understanding of human behavior. They write 
for actors in such a way that gives them such rich moments to play. They did this before in Through the Valley of Shadows last season when they revealed Pike's future to him and he was forced to have to come to terms with what that meant to this mission and, for, and to the mission of his remaining career. I mean, that, that beautiful moment where he quotes to himself his commitment to Starfleet. Yes. I mean, yes. that's perfect. Oh, yeah. Um, they, they have repeatedly displayed their capacity for creating emotional dilemmas that require a character to confront who they are. Pike went, went through this in Through the Valley of Shadows, mm -hmm. and they've also written wonderful character development material for Saru throughout this series. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, you could actually say up to this point that they kind of play the same role DC Fontana did in the original series. We know that she was involved in all the episodes where Spock was more centrally located in That's the story. Right. And likewise, every one of the episodes thus far in this series where Saru has been centered, where it's been about him. That's the brightest star, the short trek, um, the uh, sound of thunder from last season. And I mean, the and and um, also um, into the forest I go. Yeah. All three of those gave him rich stuff to play with. Yeah. Um, so they've they've given him. He's he's been the subject of, of their work more than anyone else. Um, so all I for, for one for one, it gave us this heartfelt reunion between Michael and the, and the crew as well. I mean, most of their writing has led to significant, rich uh, opportunities for characters to really be to blossom up and pulling the audience into the emotional life of, of, of these individuals. Um, this allows us to become more emotionally invested in their their adventures. I mean, we, we, so we're basically looking forward to more scripts from them in the future. Oh, definitely, definitely. You know, when you talked about Saru, it just reminded me of uh, the other char uh, one of the other characters that's you know, uh, you know, more of a supporting uh, player mm -hmm. uh, who is an alien, the one with the big eyes. What is his name? Oh, Sarin? The Sarin? Oh, Linus. Linus, Linus. Yes, who's and, a Sarin. Yeah, and Linus is more of a caricature to me. Well. You know, he uh, he's there to be, he's usually there for the comic relief. So and, far. Yeah, and, you know, whereas Saru is, you know, this fully developed being. Absolutely, you know? absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, they just went and looked at the Star Trek, the motion picture, and saw this one odd alien in the background right. that they found out later in one of the tech books was a siren, and then they created him for the show last season. And in fact, we only saw him in that one episode where he sneezes, so this is his second appearance. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> but you're right. Saru really has the richness, the three-dimensionality of That's him, right. how much we really get. And, 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 and in part, I think the reason why we see it being so perfect that he's the captain is because of a lot of the work that they've done in regards to really rendering his character in a stronger sense. Oh, definitely. Yeah. You know? 
So another asset of this episode was the introduction of Adira, the 16-year-old non-binary human carrying a trill symbiote, Admiral Senatal, with memories for some part of the last nine centuries. We know there is one more new cast member to be introduced on the show that is a trill. Possibly they will be the hosts that can access the history and personal memories of the last 900 years once the host is able to access those memories. But with Adira, we now have three scientifically astute characters who also are extremely sarcastic. That's putting it lightly. Uh, Samus and Jet <laughs> Reno being the other two, and only one is played by by an actor, and we're going to use that term loosely. Act, act, actor with quotation marks. With quotation marks, who openly admits she can't learn her lines. We can use two of them, but we certainly don't need three. Yes, yes. Maybe there's an airlock in somebody's future. Oh, my God. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. Oh, okay. So there's another thing that we're adding now f- just for this season. We're calling it Detmer Watch. <laughs> a few and, 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 and a few other um, observations. So it's possible that we're basically observing uh, Lieutenant Detmer as someone who is manifesting symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder or survivor's guilt, as opposed to being um, being under the influence of control, which I, which on the internet is one of the going rumors. Yeah, or one suspicion. of the theories. One of the theories. Said, yeah. I think I think it's more evident that she's going through that this emotional uh, uh, challenge as opposed to be, being controlled. I just don't think I want to see another season where we got an AI as, oh, as, the, as a villain yeah. in the background. Yeah, we had that with Picard and we oh, had, and then we had it with Discovery. And so I think they've gone to that well too many times. Yeah, so I think I would like it to be more of a personal journey and conflict yes. as opposed to some, something that actually would, could make sense. I mean, you basically brought yourselves forward in, in the future 930 years and you're confronted with a much harsher reality than you would have anticipated and i think that would make you 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 know you'd be you'd be detached from that you'd you'd be you would be knocked off center by that that's right um so anyway um i started to think about this after michael's chat with tilly i mean tilly was mourning the passing of her family members that um, that had returned to dust long ago and, but for her, she might have just had a call with her mom right before they went through the wormhole. So, again, the the immediacy of all these changes for the crew is different than what Michael's gone through. Michael's had a period of adjustment. Um, Detmer might be the one crew member who is the most prone to exhibiting the psychological reactions to what they've gone all gone through. I mean, in most science fiction, time travel is a round trip, right? You know, you go to the future, yep. you come back. Back to the future is all about that. They go back. They go, That's right. They keep bouncing back. Um, the original time machine is all about that. All right. It's hard to imagine how a person would react to realizing that the, the trip is only one way. That's right. You know, anyway, it's, a theory, it's a, a theory that I have, and I'm curious to see how this will pan out through the course of the season. So we'll be on Detmer watch going forward. (laughs) 
And for our last subject for this section, uh, we want to talk a little bit about Terralisium. So you, you remember Terralisium, you know, that was really one of my favorite episodes of last right. uh, season. Right. And um, and we don't think that Terralisium actually is a dead issue. Nope. Uh, and we also don't think that Breno's mom is out of the picture entirely Mm-mm. either. No. Both of these plot threads provide rich story storyteller potential down the line. They might be explored at a later date. Yeah, I mean, now we don't have any um, confirmation on that. No. We, this is just speculation on our part. But I think both of those provide them with some interesting things that they could explore in, in an episode or as an aspect of the episode right. that... I, I don't know about you, I would find it entertaining. And we already know that uh, Michael has been able to be in contact with with somebody on Terra Elysium. Right. So they actually have more technology as part of their lives than they did when they last saw them. That's right. So who's to say that there isn't a completely different environment? So anyway. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that. I mean, maybe it won't happen until now that we know there's going to be a fourth season. Maybe it'll be a cliffhanger or, or you know, they'll save it for next season. Right. You know, but, but we would like it dealt with. It would be great if they did. I think that was a rich... I, we, we just both liked that episode, and I think that there's stuff there that we could definitely want to see more of. Yeah. So today we're going to introduce a new segment to our podcast that takes the place of the Easter egg segment. I mean, here we will take a closer look at a reference included in the current episode, um, a reference that may be an Easter egg, but it will also possibly include references to Star Trek history or characters, episodes, or uh, canonical allusions. Um, The title is... Insufficient facts always invite danger. Mm-hmm. And this was voiced by Spock in the night in the original series episode, The Space Seed, during the dinner party with Khan. Right. Adele, why don't you start? Well, I think I will. So my fact uh, focuses on the term United Earth. In the episode People of Earth, we learned that in the 32nd century, following the burn, United Earth seceded from the Federation and abdicated its role uh, as the host of the seat of government for the Federation based in Paris. And in in addition, San Francisco no longer serves as the site of Starfleet headquarters or the functioning campus of the Academy. It appears United Earth has abandoned the Federation under the justification of self-preservation, but have cut themselves off from their role in support and protection of Earth Colony. Yeah, so if you ain't on Earth, you ain't of Earth. Yeah, yeah, you just SOL. That's right. So indeed, these are shocking revelations when one recalls how instrumental humans, the people of Earth, were in the initiation of the Federation as well as the ideals of this institution. United Earth, also known as the World Government, was a planetary state created through the unification of Earth in the 22nd century, following first contact with Vulcans in in the year 2063. The founding of the Federation follows a similar evolution as the League of Nations, which preceded the United Nations. 
1955, United Earth's Captain Jonathan Archer was instrumental in bringing together humans, Vulcans, Tellurites, Andorians, and a few other species together to sign a charter for the Coalition of Planets, which later became the United Federation of Planets in the year 2161. The Federation became one of the most powerful interstellar states in known space. It encompassed 8,000 light years. The total number of formal member worlds was over 150. Unlike its imperial rivals, the Federation's various member worlds joined willingly. Starfleet was incorporated to maintain exploratory, scientific, diplomatic, and defense functions. So one can understand that when United Earth renounced its allegiance to the Federations, this was a decision of momentous gravity. By the way, it was the original series staff writer Gene L. Kuhn, not Gene Roddenberry, who is credited with the creation of Starfleet Command. Kuhn is also credited for uh, creating the Klingons, the Prime Directive, and the term United Federation of Planets, and more. Gene Roddenberry created Star Trek, but without Kuhn, Star Trek wouldn't be Star Trek. Well, that's true. I mean, we, we, we all appreciate the contributions of everybody involved in the original series and with all the series going forward. So I'll just put that caveat there. But like a lot of times, we get, have the assumption that the guy in front right. is the only one who had any significant contributions to what we call the thing that we love. And right. that's just fundamentally not true. Right, exactly. And this exactly. is just one example of where uh, there was somebody else not in the leadership position. That's right. Who helped significantly in building out the what we now see as the canon, the universe of Star Trek. That's right. So anyway, that's my, that's my, <laughs> that's my, that's my soapbox, and I'll, I'll get off it now. Now my um, fact is I went back and looked at the how much alien invasion stories have been used or incorporated in certain episodes or the subject matter or stories in Star Trek. And I thought that I'd identify some of them. Now, obviously, the first one that comes to mind is the best of both worlds, part mm -hmm. one and two, mm -hmm. where the Borg come to take Earth oh, yeah. and do it in a real, in, in a pretty aggressive way. I mean, that whole Mars defense is gone in like oh, yeah. six seconds. Definitely. You know? But we also have seen that as the subject matter of the film, First Contact, which also dealt with the Borg trying to come to Earth. This time, they That's figured right. they'd do it in the past. That's right. Since they tried it in the in, in, in at their present time, it didn't work. Right. So they figured they 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 spin it again and do it in the past, and that didn't work either. That's right. But we've also other seen other episodes, you know, with Carpenter Street, which from uh, the Enterprise where. You see some of the Zindi go back into the past. Go oh, actually, that's right. they go to Detroit. In fact, that's and right. they're testing some. They're testing one of the well, weapons. Well, how, how was version of Detroit? Well, yeah, because it ain't no Detroit that I've ever seen. I know that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, they go to Detroit and they test one of the weapons they want to use to eradicate humans. In fact, you could actually take the entire 
third season of Enterprise and say that that is an attempt to invade and destroy Earth front by the Zindi. And then we have the comical episode of Little Green Men from Deep Space Nine, where in some anomaly, time-traveling anomaly, Nog, his dad Rom, and his uncle Cork end up in the past in on Earth at Roswell, and they are supposedly... The assumption is that they're the little green men that mm. create the whole whole myth behind the dead aliens right. on, at Roswell. So anyway, um, th- that's another one. It's 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 uh, it's comical, but that whole idea of in alien invasion mm-hmm. has been something that's kind of been part of Star Trek all along. And we, and actually, when you think about it, the Corbomite maneuver plays on this theory too because here you have baby clint howard but the face that is manifested is of this evil balded you know ominous alien with the with the freakish light on him and again that's playing into these paranoia attitudes that earth is that 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 these aliens are coming to destroy or or endanger humans so that's this, that's been something that I think that we've come back to a lot of times that's in right. um, Star Trek. So now let's move on to Star Trek news. The first thing we want to talk about is the unveiling of the Captain Janeway monument. Woohoo! <laughs> so recently on October 24th in Bloomington, Indiana, a monument was erected in Janeway's honor. Uh, because it is the supposedly the future birthplace of Captain Catherine Janeway. Star Trek Voyager star Kate Mulgrew, who of course played the title, played that character, appeared via remote at the event and answered some questions about her famous role. Voyager established that Janeway was born in Bloomington on May 20th, 2336. Last year, Captain Janeway um, Bloomington Collective Fan Group launched a successful campaign to fund the construction of a monument to be placed in Bloomington, Indiana, in honor of the fictional captain. Kate Mulgrew spoke about how honored she was by the monument and by carrying on the story of Janeway. In fact, she commented, I'm not often rendered speechless, but... (laughs) I'm sorry. I know. That is funny. That is funny. But in this moment, I am. How many people have such a marvelous thing done in their honor, in their memory? It's a wonderful comment on Janeway's legacy. And hearing you all speak today is deeply moving to me. To realize that Janeway has had such an important role in your lives. And I think in cultural history, it's not only terribly affecting for me, but makes me want to go forth in a new way. And I am doing that with Prodigy. (laughs) But this recognition is something extraordinary to me. And I am deeply proud to be honored in this way. I think it is a great honor. And I, and, and I, I think that the character does have an important role in popular culture and how she, you can see how she has inspired a whole host of young women 
to take on leadership roles and how I, uh, that Kate Mulgrew's performance did present a model of female leadership that wasn't um, frightening, wasn't clawing, wasn't um, just a man as with with a, with female exterior elements. Right, right. I mean, there was there, there was a legitimate thought about taken in regards to how they presented Janeway right. in that show. One of the things I do herald about about Voyager, in spite of the fact that I, you know, it's not one of my favorite Star Trek series. Mm-hmm. I think that I think a lot of I think a lot of the stuff that they did with her was really good. Right. It was it was very interesting. All kidding aside. Yes. Okay. Um, the full video of the monument unveiling is available on Facebook. Um, it can be found by searching the Captain Janeway Bloomington Collective. Their Facebook post includes a video tribute to Janeway, um, featuring fans and some Bloomington and Star Trek luminaries, including Mulgrew's Voyager co-star Robert Picardo. Mm. It also offers some closer looks at the monument itself, including showing how it was made. Hmm. So I think that's pretty good. Yeah, that is pretty good. So next we want to talk about the Star Trek The Pod Directive. Mm -hmm. The October 26th installment of the podcast featured astronaut Samantha Cristoforati, famous for her cosplay of Catherine Janeway on the International Space Station. Calling in from Germany, she talked to the host about what it's like to be a fan of Star Trek while also working towards the future of space exploration that the show clearly envisions. From that description, the episode sounded much more interesting than it actually was, at least from our point of view. Although the shortest of the installments thus far, the podcast seemed to drag a bit as the hosts Tawny Newsom and Paul F. Tompkins seemed unable to engage their subject in any meaningful or interesting way, as was most successful in the conversations with scholar Raisa Aslan and the discussion of the treatment of black racial themes in Star Trek. Here's hoping that the next episode will be more noteworthy. And was it? I think so. Why don't you tell us about that, Sure. Gary? The November 2nd installment of the podcast fared far better, featuring an environmentalist and professor Bill McKibben. The episode begins with a 10-minute chat between Tawny and Paul to cite instances where Star Trek episodes such as The Inner Light focused on environmental issues. Then Paul interviews McKibben, who has been a Star Trek fan since watching the original series as a child. You should be advised there were few references to Star Trek during the interview. However, McKibben's comments on climate change is well worth the time to listen to him, since that's becoming a far more interesting and important issue. Important, yeah. Hugely important, specifically anybody who's lived out on the West Coast in California, Oregon, or Washington. In the United States. And in the United States, and has suffered mightily from the wildfires that we've been dealing with. Um, in fact, other people around the world would have been dealing with all the smoke that have been wafting over other, you know, to their, their countries as well. That's right. So anyway, the scholar paints a gloomy picture 
for in regard, if we maintain the inaction that we've had thus far. But he does provide realistic measures we can call we can all adopt to save the planet for future generations. This episode also demonstrated when the pod directive works best. That is when the guests can be given time and um, to prompt and run with it instead of relying on the interviewer to coax more thought-provoking conversations from the guests. And so basically, I think that, yeah, this was a way where this person who made, whose life has been enriched by his love of Star Trek was then brought into a field where he's actually using real science to try to make a difference in, in the world that's we right. live in. That's right. And I think that's just fantastic. Right. And now we want to make one note on The Ready Room, the show hosted by Will Wheaton. Is it hosted by Will Wheaton? (laughs) Is it still hosted by him? That's true. Oh, wow. The October 29th episode of The Ready Room featured the writing team of Bo Young Kim and Erica Lippold, as well as Jonathan Frakes, who directed the episode People of Earth. The episode was definitely one of the better installments of this after show as it provided a deeper dive into the Discovery episode and analyzed the conduct of the characters. Following this segment, we spoke with music director Jeff Russo about being a longtime fan of Star Trek and also about his approach to writing music to the series, Discovery, and Picard. You know, the thing I liked about the, the Ready Room, that episode, was the the story that Frakes revealed about the actress who played in Doye. Oh, yeah. And yeah. how she was, she's South African, and she was cast, this was actually the last at, um, acting job she was going to audition for. She had already written friends back in South Africa that she was coming home, that she was not interested uh, and she was actually kind of depressed about the fact that this career path had not really been as more fruitful for her. Right. And so what she decided to do was to um, actually consider the possibility. Yeah, yeah, giving up. And I thought that that was wonderful and that she had such a wonderful time working on this episode that she's she's actually reversed that decision. That's right. And she's going to continue to pursue acting because I, I thought she was great. I thought she was fantastic. So, you know, so I am glad that she made a decision to stay in it. I mean, it's a tough field. It, it is not easy at all. Right. And I completely understand. And especially a woman of color, you know. I can, I can completely yeah. understand her being depressed and, and losing hope. But. She was really good. Oh, she yeah, was really definitely. good. I mean, there again, the caliber of actors that they bring to bear on this show, with the exception of maybe one or two <laughs> individuals, has been hmm, stellar. I wonder who that is. Well, who you is? know, I'm just, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but she, had, it was great when the when the view screen came up and there was a black female face. Representing Earth, I agree. It was great when you saw how she handled business, Um, even when you disagreed with her approach. Right. It was. It was just. I. She she, she was. She was believable as an authority figure. Absolutely, absolutely, and and it was also believable in regards to how she came up. I mean, yes, it's a TV show, and the transition to being cooperative with when was. A little, you know, it was a little crafted, but 
aside from that, I I really really liked what she had to bring to the to the story. So in closing, next week we'll be back to review episode four of the third season of Star Trek Discovery. This episode is entitled "Forget Me Not." which from the trailer appears as if the crew will visit the Trill homeworld. And it also looks like Michael is going to get into a fight. (laughs) So uh, that looks pretty exciting. Mm. The episode four will drop Thursday, November 5th in the United States on CBS All Access and in Canada on CTV Sci-Fi Channel, and it will stream on Crave. Internationally, you can find it on Netflix beginning Friday, November 6th. But until that time... Like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter, on Facebook, and at our website, StarTrekAOD.net, where where we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon, interesting sidebar issues, and different aspects of the show. Also... Email the show at Star Trek AOD at gmail.com. But until then, live long and prosper.